Hey there, listeners. This is Justin with a quick note before today's episode. Spotify recently allowed users to start leaving reviews for podcasts, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would consider listening to the show on Spotify, leaving us a positive review. I don't even think you have to write anything in. You just get a star rating and that's it. But uh, if you're willing to do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks and enjoy today's show. Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career and life. Today's episode number 426, Building a Community on LinkedIn with Justin and Jennifer Welsh. The market no longer cares about degrees and certificates. What happens is we all go to school, we all get a degree, not all of us, but a lot of us get a degree. Some of us get a master's, some of us get our series seven, some of us get our six sigma, whatever it's called. And then we go out into the market like, and then we get our clients or our first job and all the other stuff that we just got, college degree, license, all gets forgotten about. All we care about is how are you performing for your clients, right? So as a business owner and someone coming from the military, I would say, don't worry about certificates. Don't worry about whether you have your MBA or you went to a certain kind of school or, or any of that. The market dictates who wins business. So share your real life personal experience. Share how you've helped other people grow in your topic or niche. Once you do that, certificates, all that stuff, it all goes out the window. It's an excuse that people use to keep themselves from getting started. So I would just encourage people to realize the work that you do for people is what matters. It's not necessarily what a piece of paper says. Well, in the 425 previous episodes, almost all of those have been with military veterans about their civilian career, what they do, how they got there, and advice for others seeking to do the same. Based on a survey I sent out last November, many of you are interested in expanding this to hear from experts who are not themselves military veterans, but could share wisdom that could help our community. Today is an episode in that line. I give context for the background on both Justin and Jennifer at the start of this interview, so I won't redo that here. I will just say that this is a great episode for anyone, whether you're a job seeker, an entrepreneur, whether you're an executive. LinkedIn is such a powerful platform. We talk about it all the time on the show. Today, we're going deep on tactics for how to use LinkedIn to grow an audience, to sell products, to find your next job, to build your brand. So many different things that you can do with it. There are a lot of resources here to go deeper, so go to beyondtheuniform.org for the show notes for this episode where you can find more information about all the resources Justin and Jennifer mention, as well as 425 other episodes just like this one. So with that, let's dive into my conversation with Justin and Jennifer Welsh. Joining me today in Nashville, Tennessee, my guests are Justin and Jennifer Welsh. Thank you both for joining me on Beyond the Uniform. Thanks so much for having us, man. We're pumped. Yeah, we're excited to be here. Thanks. So we're going to do a couple things. I'm going to give a bio for Justin and Jennifer, and then I'm going to give some context for why we're starting today. Let's start with the bios. So first for Jennifer, after a decade managing global office operations for high-growth startups, Jennifer pivoted to pursue her passion for personal finance. She's on a mission to share financial literacy and help people get started investing in the stock market. You can read all of her best tips on LinkedIn, where she's amassed over 50,000 followers in the last 12 months. And Justin Welsh is a solopreneur building a portfolio of one-person businesses to $5 million plus in revenue. As a, quote, diversified entrepreneur, he splits his time between investing in early B2B SaaS companies, advising early-stage SMB SaaS companies in the healthcare technology vertical, 
building digital products, running a paid community for creators and coaching entrepreneurs. Prior to his work as an entrepreneur, he spent a decade as an operator helping build two 50 million plus ARR or annual recurring revenue companies and raised over 300 million in venture capital. And so just to add on to that, the context here is a friend referred me to Justin's course, which I highly recommend to our audience. I'll put the link in the show notes. I watched that course and then I subscribed to an online community he has that's just as great and have gotten to know Jennifer digitally through there. Justin, your courses are exceptional. Longtime listeners know I hate fat included in material and it is very, very efficient and to the point, extremely educational. And both of you, I've just loved your content on LinkedIn and the message that you're espousing. And also for context, uh, I will be connecting with Justin soon for a one-on-one coaching session. He charges roughly $1,000 per hour. So for those of you listening, you're getting like $2,000 of advice here for free with both Justin and Jennifer. So maybe to start things off, and I'll ask Jennifer you first, I'd love just the context for listeners of what seems like a pretty big transition of having a set career and then striking off on your own. How did that come about? To make a, a long story short, I worked in the startup industry for about 10 years Before that, I was in the hospitality industry. I was working at restaurants and hotels. And I essentially took that experience over to the startup world where I oversaw employee experience for fast-growing startups. So it was like hospitality for employees of these startups. So I did that for 10 years and that involved working directly for companies and then opening my own company. When COVID started, I was kind of on the tail end of having enthusiasm for doing that. And offices were shutting down and employees weren't we're working at offices anyway, and I didn't want to help startups learn how to like run remote environments and some of these things that were happening. So just as my enthusiasm for that phase of my life was dying down, the stock market was crashing. Like COVID happened, the world is ending, everything stops, the stock market crashes. And I had a hobby of investing in the stock market a long time ago. Like it's, I started doing that in 2008. And when my career, my startup career started getting going, I sort of forgot about that and left it behind. And when the stock market crashed in 2020, I picked it up again. And I just enjoyed it so much that I started investing a lot. I'm like talking Justin's ear off about it. Then I start talking to friends and family about it, saying things like, this is a huge opportunity to start investing. Everything is on sale. And I realized by talking to friends who are smart, professional, well-educated people that have money, I realized that investing in the stock market and general financial literacy is an area that a lot of people are intimidated by. They don't know a lot about it. And so I started helping friends and family with personal finance kind of things and realized that there was a market of people that were hungry for financial literacy and that I could start talking about it on social media. Justin really prompted me and encouraged me to do that because he had already been building his audience on LinkedIn, talking about sales and personal branding. So I just started talking about personal finance on LinkedIn not thinking anyone would listen or care, but they did. And so I've been doing that for a year now and that has kind of developed into a new business. That's great. The two things I love about that is one, what could have been this travesty of the stock market crashing, it it turned into an opportunity, which I think is a great reminder for people. Sometimes the biggest colossal things that may be seeming to go wrong can lead to huge changes for the good in our life. And two, I, I love that this came out of this hobby And it sounds like it wasn't this like clear epiphany, but you just took reasonable 
small steps and started to realize that people around you were gaining value. And I'm, I'm imagining you began to triple down on that as you saw traction, but it wasn't this like all or nothing switch if I'm, if I'm tracking correctly. You're tracking correctly. And what I would just say to anybody listening is the exciting, good, fascinating thing about what has happened with my story is I just love reading about the stock market and looking at it all day and learning new things. You can't learn it all, right? So there's unlimited things to learn. And I found a way to make a hobby and something that I'm interested in into a job. So if there, what I would say is like, if there's something that you really love spending your time on, And there's, you know, there could be a way to make a job out of that, but it certainly didn't happen overnight. It was a slow realization. And then it was like, wow, there's this whole world of people who could benefit from knowing some of the things that I know. So yeah, it's been very interesting and incremental, but here we are. It's, it's really interesting. That's great. And Justin, what about you? I spent about 10 years growing some pretty fast startup companies in the sales organization. So Jennifer and I met back in 2010 at a startup where she was starting her career in the global office operations space. I was in sales, became a sales leader, parlayed that into an executive job in 2015. Uh, My first executive role, 33 years old, thought I would maybe last six months or 12 months. The average VP of sales lasts about 16, made it five years. Had a second stint at that company called Patient Pop in Los Angeles as their chief revenue officer. So all in all, did about five and a half years there. Helped grow the business from its first dollar in revenue after the second stint, a little over $70 million in recurring. And uh, what really happened with me is I worked at these two really fast-growing startups for five consecutive years each. And that just burned me out. Burned me out completely. I was working you know, 80 hours a week. I was eating too much. I was drinking too much. I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't exercising. There was just a lot of really, really bad habits going on. And so when I originally left Patient Pop uh, and and, and walked away from my executive role, um, I had this sort of hypothesis that the best thing that I could do for myself was to get some attention. And like, that's a really weird way to describe what I do now, but like, that's what it is. Going on social media and creating content every day is trying to get attention. That's that's what it is. And I think that's what we should call it. I didn't know what I'd be getting attention for. I thought maybe I'd consult, maybe I'd do a little advising. And those things happened. But over time, much like Jennifer's story, people started coming to me for some weird things. Like they came to me and said, hey, your content's really cool and I'm enjoying it. And yeah, it's all about sales and SaaS, but I'm more interested in how you're actually creating it. How do you create content? How do you write? How do you grow on LinkedIn? How do you use Twitter? And that kind of opened my eyes where it was just like, oh, this is actually stuff that people are interested in a bit more than than what I'm doing. So I went from burned out exec to consulting for early stage SaaS companies, which I still do a little bit, to really becoming um, a creator and helping other folks grow their audience, create a service business, productize their knowledge, scale that 24-7. There are so many pieces and parts, just like the financial market, of learning about being a solopreneur. And so two years later here in 2022, I'm I'm almost fully in the creator mode and, and have almost left all of my SaaS sort of background behind me. I think it's something that's really interesting. I think it's very common with our audience. So as I'm hearing your story, the hypothesis I have is like, man, you both built up a decades of experience in really highly specialized fields. And you were willing to shift to something that is not really drawing on, I'm guessing, 
80% or 90% of what you learned. Obviously, it's who you are, but like the Justin, in your case, SaaS or healthcare, like it doesn't seem like that plays a huge role in what you're doing. And I think of so many of our audience that may spend five years or three years or 20 years in the military and they may go on and not utilize that at all. I'm curious, maybe Justin, with you to start, was that hard to leave behind? decades of experience. I feel like so much of the popular mentality is like you build up equity and then you kind of like cash that in. And so much of what you're doing seems to be new. It seems to be not really drawing from really highly specialized knowledge that you built up. Yeah. There's a few thoughts. Like number one, it was, it's pretty scary. You know, I spent most of my career trying to become a VP of sales. That's what I wanted to do. And I got there at a pretty young age. And then like I kind of threw it all away for, for lack of a better description. That's scary, sure. But I did it in sort of a stepwise process where I didn't just toss it out the window in hopes that this next business venture or multiple business ventures would go well, right? I got traction with the business ventures that I'm become, you know, that I'm leading right now. And I did that until I was able to earn a living that was similar to my previous role. Once I did that, I started to tamp down my SaaS experience. One notable thing, though, is that coming from a sales background, so much of that was transferable to what I do now, writing landing pages, writing copy, selling my products, selling my services. All of that stuff is born out of what I learned about throughout the last 17 years, as I'm sure Jennifer's logistics knowledge and all the things that she learned in her uh, startup days probably translated pretty darn well to, to what she's doing today. But it's certainly scary. And I would assume for your listeners who have been active duty military members and things like that, that they've probably learned a lot of really, really important skill sets that will translate really, really well to whatever they choose to do next. And so I think it's about looking at the skills that you acquire over time and understanding how you can apply those things differently to different opportunities, should I say. That's great. Jennifer, anything to add there? Yeah, I think I would just say I totally agree with Justin. I can remember in my startup days, I interviewed and hired people a lot. And I remember interviewing people that had been in the military. And I remember we hired this one guy in an IT role and we would have like a panel of interviews and then do all these different interviews. And then we'd get in a room and talk about the candidate. And what we always liked about military people was they were so process oriented, which is a, a really a thing that can be really lacking, especially especially in the startup world where everyone's like figuring things out by the seat of their pants. So I think that for someone who thinks that they have to abandon all the skills that they've worked so hard to achieve or learn or whatever, I think everybody has skills like people that work in restaurants have amazing people skills. They can put up with a lot more shit than the average person from customers. Like, so I think that people have skills that they don't maybe realize are a skill and, you know, like Justin was saying, his, his sales experience has helped him sell his business and help other people sell their businesses now. But skills are more transferable, I think, than people imagine. And being process-oriented and logistics-oriented in some of those things, which I think a lot of military people are, I think are skills that could transfer to a lot of different industries. And also, if you have the skill to teach other people, like if you've had a leadership role in a military capacity to teach process and stuff like that to other people would be valuable in a lot of different ways. So I would encourage people to think about how, how they could apply their basic skills to other things because there's a there's a whole world of people that need process and, and things like that. 
That's great. Hearing both of you, it makes me feel like there's this cool thought of like stacking skills and habits and perspectives. Like I just, you know, from the pieces about each of you, I know that I've seen from your public work on LinkedIn. It's like, it really is like your vantage point is formed by the thousands of experience that is, has have preceded this. And so it gives you this really unique voice. It really gives you this unique take. So even if it's not overtly being used, I'm imagining a lot of these skills are still put to use. I also wanted to ask about just your experience working together now. I, I know at your previous company you met, I don't think you guys were directly working with each other there. And I know not all of our listeners may start a company with a, a spouse, but they may do it with a family member or someone who's really close. So I'm just kind of curious, any advice you have for someone who might partner with a spouse or a family member or someone really close to them? Maybe I'll start with you, Jennifer, on that one. I think find a way maybe to separate work time and personal time. Justin and I are really bad about that. And so we find ourselves talking about work over dinner and all the time, and it can become all-consuming. So we're kind of working to find a little personal time where we don't talk about work or we don't look at our phones and computers, but maybe find time to separate those two things. I think Jennifer and I got (laughs) slightly lucky because... When we were working together in 2010, our first sort of foray into working with one another was I was moving across the country from New York to San Francisco. And Jennifer, who was a new employee who I didn't know very well yet, we had chatted a few times, was tasked with helping me make that move. And she (laughs) found out right away how difficult I am to work with um, and, and how sort of demanding demanding I can be, which is we're smiling, but there's definitely some, <laughs> some like reminiscing of, of uh, some, some challenging times, but I'm a pretty demanding person to work for. And so she got an early glimpse of that, still decided to marry me and work with me anyways. So that's a, that's a good thing. I would say patience is really important. I tend, both of us tend to be pretty highly impatient, I would say for the, for the most part. And so when we're working together at home, like we have to remember that we're, we're spouses that we're, that we're not just work partners, right? Like work can get pretty intense and important, especially when we're working together for our livelihood. And so I think it's really critical to remember and separate some of those things like, like Jennifer and, and I talked about, or Jennifer talked about earlier. I think another thing to remember is that you each have different skills that you bring to the table. I come from a sales background. So selling products and services is just second nature to me. Whereas Jennifer comes from a logistics and organizational background. So like keeping us organized, making sure everything is flowing and working the right way and making sure that I'm not overlooking small things when I'm moving real fast has been a really good way to work together. But all in all, it presents some some unique challenges, right? If you have a bad week, like it's hard to separate the fact that, okay, we're going out to dinner as spouses, even though we just had a crappy work week. That's difficult to do. So got to have thick skin. You got to have empathy for one another, and you have to separate, I think, work and and personal time as effectively as possible. You just gave me an idea that I'll add on, which is we have definitely recognized over the course of working together what we're each good at and what what maybe we're each not so good at. And so I think in any working relationship, but maybe especially with a family member, but this probably works for anything, is to define like what each person is good at and therefore like what they will kind of own and where the other person comes in as a support. Justin's really good at a lot of things that I'm bad at and vice versa. So defining from the outset, who's going to kind of like own which part of the business 
And then kind of proceeding from there where there's some established, like, this is what I take care of and this is what you take care of can be, I think, helpful. I think that's great. You know, Jennifer, to your earlier point, I can think of with my wife and I, we have a three-year-old and it's like making sure that when we have dinner, it's not all about talking about our son. Like we're having to have those boundaries as well. And I feel like the advice you're you're both giving are just great partnership advice in general of just the patience and the delegation being clear on who's responsible for each. Those are really great points. I want to get into LinkedIn, putting yourself out there, all of those things. But I want to start with a question. Um, I actually joined you both for a webinar on Friday. And Justin, you had said something, and I've been thinking about this all weekend. And what I remember you saying was something to the impact of really picking one thing, in this case on LinkedIn, that you're known for. And you talked about with yourself, like you only write about, let's just call it one swim lane. You only comment on posts about that. You don't get into anything outside of it, be it politics or whatever else. And one of the reasons I'm bringing it up is that on the show, we've talked a lot about how much veterans struggle with this, that when they leave the military, they'll say like, I'm a Swiss army knife, I'll do anything, which doesn't help someone like me plug them into my Rolodex. Like I need to know what size company, what industry, what functional role, like the more specific, the easier it is for me to help them. So I was thinking about your comment, Justin, and like part of me was thinking like, man, if you pick one thing, people associate you with that. So you're the top of mind referral source. They're like, oh yeah, Justin's the guy who helps small businesses become big businesses. And it also aligns your your all of your actions in one thing. But I, I was wondering if you could maybe go into more detail about why do we struggle to do that? And why is it so important to be really crystal clear on what our swim lane is? I think people struggle for a number of reasons. Here are some, maybe some guesses on, on to why. One is naturally people have a lot of interests, right? Like Jennifer and I have lots of different interests. I could talk about travel. I could talk about wine, craft beer, food. Like we have a bunch of different business, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever, right? There's a million different things. That's the number one challenge. First of all, people are pulled in a lot of directions. I think, I think secondarily, people are impressed by those folks that they see online or in the real world who appear to be these philosophical sort of, um, they have something smart to say about everything, right? They know something about writing. They know something about art. They know something about music. I think that's, we've lifted that up on a pedestal in our society to be this sort of, you know, well-rounded person who's really interesting, right? The most interesting man in the world. And that might translate really well at dinner parties. That might be really interesting in a setting where you're at a, a large gathering. And you might even get some great engagement online if you write about interesting things and you have an interesting perspective. Where I talk about focusing on one specific thing is starting a business. And so if you look at how folks use online, you know, think about guys like David Perel. He is the writing guy. People follow him because they want to learn how to write. Think about folks like Jack Butcher. He is someone who does visual drawings, right? They want to see how he visualizes thoughts using his artistic skill. He's known for that one thing, right? And when you drill down and get known for one thing, it becomes easy for customers to say, that's the thing that I want to do. And since Justin is the person who helps people do that very specific thing, then it's really hard for someone else to compete with me in that very, very niche offering. And so I try and nail it down to what I call a niche of one, 
where you're really just competing with yourself. And if you're competing with just yourself and there's not a million people doing the, the wide swath of things that you do, then you're just more likely to win business. That's how I think about it. That's great. I, I want to go further on this, but J- Jennifer, anything? I just want to make space if there's anything you want to add there. I do want to add something. Yeah, this question is a good one because when I left my startup role, where I was a Swiss Army knife kind of role, I was uh, doing facilities management, I was managing real estate portfolios, I was overseeing event planning, I was buying lunch for everyone in the office in three different global offices. So I was wearing many hats. And when I got the idea that I would go out on my own and build my own business, I thought I'll be a startup consultant and I'll instead of working for one startup, I'll go do this for lots of startups. And so I started my first company, it was called Culture Ops. And my idea was that I would take all of this real estate experience and employee experience, all these different things, and I could help all these startups with all these things related to growth and scale. So what did I do? I made a website and I made it, I tried to display my Swiss army skills and like, oh, you can hire me for this myriad of things. And I think that the result was that people came to the website and was like, what does this girl do? And so in retrospect, you know, as I wound that business down, what I thought and what I still think is if I could do that all over again, my favorite aspect of that role was probably event planning. I oversaw teams that planned big events and I knew and I and I know that startups have a budget, they struggle to plan events, they don't know how to do it. So some low level person does it, they don't really know what they're doing. I wish that I would have said, I help startups plan great events on a budget. I could have gotten some clients that way. And if they liked me, I could have been like, oh yeah, I can also help you with real estate. I could also help you with these other things. But I wish, and I think I would have had a lot more success with my first company if I had made it about one specific thing and I could have been the event planning girl for startups or something like that. But I didn't do that. And I think that I I wasn't specific enough in my niche. I didn't really have a niche at all. And I could have done that a lot better. So even if you can do a wide variety of things, I think instead of also instead of just thinking about the thing that could make you the most money, I think think about the thing that you're the best at that you really enjoy doing and start small, start there, maybe add later. But being a Swiss army knife kind of person can work to your detriment if you can't communicate clearly like one specific thing you can help people with. And I would just like just to wrap and add on to the end of that for your listeners, like if they think through this thought process, let's let's imagine that one of your listeners wants to plan an event and they're interviewing two people, one person who does nothing but plan incredible event events on a budget and one person who does some events and also some real estate and also some global office ops and also buys lunch. Like it's it's clear who's going to win the job, right? And so I would think, I would just encourage your audience to think through that question as they go to figure out how they want to focus on one thing. I think one thing I'll surface that I've learned from you both is that, or at least what I've interpreted from what you guys have taught is that part of this is inherently uncomfortable because you're going to put out content that doesn't resonate with everyone. And I feel like part of this, and this is true for job search or forming any sort of community, Part of it is is becoming comfortable realizing like either what I'm selling or what I'm talking about or what I'm going after won't connect with everyone. But the sooner that I get people out of my feed or out of my funnel or out of my audience, I can really hone in and better serve the very, very tiny sliver that I'm going after. And to Justin's point, you're going to be unstoppable if you're the one person who serves that really unique audience really well. And maybe building on this, 
what advice do you have? And we'll start with you, Justin, is like, how do you think about, yes, there is the hyper niche focus, but then there has to be the scale there. Like there has to be interest there. There has to be some sort of traction. As I myself start something new and as I see others do it, I wonder about like, how do you know the difference between patience of the steady, slow ramp versus like, hey, maybe there's not a large enough audience or I'm not a good enough person to do Excel in this one area. And I should therefore try a different hobby or a different niche. I think it's like anything else, right? I think it's like a balance. First of all, when you go out to sort of figure out who you're serving in, in the niche, I think you should do some research and try and understand what's my actual target addressable market, right? And understand like how many people are in this thing, right? If you say I write cookbooks for vegan people who like to eat cookies, you probably have 100,000 folks who who might be interested in that. If you were to do the same thing and say, I'm only addressing vegan people who enjoy chocolate chip cookies who live in Canton, Ohio, well, then you've really restricted your your niche down quite quite far. And so I think it's really important to figure out how many people actually exist in this niche. And then there's two ways to scale up. There's like what I would call the Gary Vaynerchuk way of scaling up, which is like start really niche, talking about wine on YouTube, right? And then now look what he does today. He runs a multi-hundred million dollar agency around digital marketing. That and wine is so so far, but he's graduated over time by expanding this sort of circle of his niche. That's one way is sort of expansion where it makes sense underneath the same umbrella. Another way is to scale using different products and services without ever leaving your niche, right? So it's starting with a low cost product where someone can teach themselves for $150. It's then allowing them to come into a community where they can work with others for $500. And then it's moving them up into a one-on-one coaching package where they can work directly with you for $850 or $1,000. And then it's a one-on-one with other groups of folks and other you know executive leaders in the space. And maybe that's $3,000. You never leave your niche. You just simply take people who are so extremely interested in the specific thing that you talk about, that the likelihood that you can offer them several products and services that are mutually beneficial, win for them, win for you as a business owner, is another great way to scale. I love in that second example, because it's like, as you're developing curiosity and empathy around this really relatively small subset of people, who is better going to know their pain points and where there are opportunities there? I love the distinction there. I think both are great examples. That's a great framework. Anything to add there, Jennifer? Yeah, I would just say, I think at the beginning, you asked a question kind of like, how do you know if this is something that you should keep going on or something that you should give up on and move to your next thing? And I think that ultimately, I struggle with this all the time. And a lot of people that are in our community are also like, am I just about to get some traction or am I wasting my time? I think that's a really common thing to people say, keep going, but now am I wasting my time? What am I doing? I think that a simple way to think about that is, to answer what problem are you solving? And then to go into what Justin was talking about, how many people have this problem? Is this really a problem? You can do some research online and figure out if what, you know, if you can define the problem, you can you can then find your audience. But if you can clearly state what problem you're solving, you can figure out if you're onto something or not just by being able to clearly state it. A lot of people struggle with that. 
me included, because I talk about personal finance and I'm like, what is the point A to point B that I can help people with? If you can define that really specifically, you can go find the people that are struggling with that problem. You can also look for signals, right? Like whether or not you're getting traction isn't just money or customers, right? It's, it's other signals, right? I think there's both quantifiable signals where it's like, okay, my email list is growing. My social media engagement is going up. I'm making a few sales. More forms are being submitted. Those are all quantifiable signals that things are moving in the right direction. And there's also just like qualitative feedback from your prospect base or customer base. Jennifer and I can both attest to the number of DMs that we get on social media has gone like this over the course of time. And most of that is love your stuff, really helpful. I saved my first $5,000. I built my first business and sold my first 2K worth of products. Like hearing all of that is another sort of data point in whether or not you're truly getting traction. There's no quantifiable signals and there's no qualitative feedback and it's been six or eight months, you know, then there is potentially a problem. All of this too, I, I know Jennifer, you'd made the point earlier. It's like you want to pick something you really enjoy and you talk about how you really like reading about finance. Like all of this exploration kind of goes back to that starting point of like, man, you got to pick something you, <laughs> you really care about because if you're going to be digging around here for gold, you want to make sure you actually enjoy whatever it is you're mining. And I really like that. Let's switch gears a little bit. And Jennifer, we'll start with you on this one is both of you have built up businesses and LinkedIn has played a pretty big role, it seems like. Why should listeners care about LinkedIn? Why would they want to be active on LinkedIn? My immediate reaction to that is because there's a ton of opportunity on LinkedIn. I say this to Justin all the time, but I look through my feed and there is a huge opportunity to stand out on LinkedIn because there is a lot of trash on there. I'll say that there are some great people, but there's a huge opportunity to find your niche. And if you can communicate your message clearly and effectively to your target market, there's a huge opportunity because of some of these things we've talked about. So many people don't have a niche. And so one day it's happy mother's day. And the next day they're talking about their dog is having surgery and then they're giving leadership advice. So despite best intentions, it's like LinkedIn can feel very messy. And I feel like my, you know, I often look at people that I follow or I'm connected with and I'm like a little jarred by the random things they talk about. So I think people should be interested in LinkedIn because there's a huge opportunity if you can be focused to really stand out. I do believe that. As human beings, we tend to attach this stigma to people who have a following or are popular, for lack of a better description. Let's take sales, for example. If, if I go back to when I was really talking about sales, there are a lot of sales leaders on LinkedIn who have a really big following. We assume as followers of those people that they're A, worth following, B, have really great knowledge, and C, have applied that knowledge somewhere in their life to become really successful. That is not necessarily true. In fact, I would argue that it's often untrue. But in our market, it's in your best interest to be top of mind. And so if you can manage your personal brand, if you can create content that's relevant, if you can learn to write effectively, video effectively, run a great podcast, talk to interesting people, if you can do all of those things, those are all tools in your toolkit for unlocking opportunities. 
right? So if I'm applying for a job or if I'm hiring for someone uh, for a job, I'm going to go look at someone's LinkedIn profile. It better be up to snuff. I can see how they think. I can see how they speak. I can see what they believe in. Those are chips that you have to your advantage that you can cash in when you want to get a job, when you want to start a business, when you want to host a podcast, all of those things are there. And if you just have a resume, you're just another piece of paper in a giant stack. But if you can figure out how to stand out, what you can do with that attention is almost limitless. So I would encourage all of your you know, listeners to think, do I want to be someone that people think about when there are unique and interesting opportunities? And if so, how do I create enough attention in the market where my name is top of mind when those unique and interesting opportunities come up? I think top of mind is such a great way of putting it as well. It is like, we're all so busy, but it's like when someone has a finance need that they need to remember like, oh yeah, Jennifer is the person I know who talks about this. Or if I'm at a dinner party and someone's like, I'm really trying to get my finances together. Like I want, I need to have someone top of mind to be able to refer them over. So there's so many advantages there. Can we talk a little bit about, I'm sure you must see a lot of these, but common mistakes that you see people make on LinkedIn. Jennifer, you already pointed out one of them, which which I'm interpreting as they're just all over the place versus really focused. Maybe starting with you, Justin, what are some common mistakes that you've noticed people doing on LinkedIn? I would say one is maybe engagement baiting. I think naturally as human beings, we have a a want to be liked in, especially during COVID, but more so just as social media moves forward and becomes more modern, likability or how we're perceived by other people is often packaged in the form of engagement, right? It's how many likes, how many comments, how many shares. People take that personally and it it gives them a sense of self-worth. And so, by the way, that happens to all of us. No one is immune to that, right? As much as we, we claim to be so. So what I see people doing is trying to gain the system very, a lot of stories that are real heart-wrenching, a lot of tear-jerkers, anything they can do to game the algorithm, get more engagement. What I often see is it might work. They might get a lot of engagement. They might get a lot of followers, but I know people with 100,000 followers that can't make a dime. I know people with 10,000 followers that are making six figures off LinkedIn. It's all about not engagement, but are you getting engagement for the right reason, from the right people who are interested in what you offer. You can't tear jerk your way to that outcome. I would recommend that you stay focused on one of three or four things, which is what can this person learn from me? How can I educate somebody? How can I entertain somebody? How can I make somebody feel seen or heard? If you can do those three things on a regular basis, your engagement might not be as high to start, but it will eventually get there and it will be with the right people. That's great. Jennifer, anything to add that you've seen people doing wrong on LinkedIn? I think I would just kind of repeat what I said before, just talking about such random things that they don't, like like we said, become known for one thing. And then it begs the question, what do you want to be known for? And if, if you have an answer for that, why not just talk about that all the time? So I think at a high level, I would say a lot of people lack clear intention. Do you think just building off of that, because I imagine some people in our audience might hear that and say, well, I don't know exactly what I want to be known for. So let me get clarity. And then I'm worried that they won't take action. And maybe that's the right call. But I'm curious, like, how much room does a platform like LinkedIn have for exploration or someone finding their way in? Or is it better for them to kind of get that clarity before they start? Like, what part of this is 
responding to feedback and iterating versus kind of having a clear hypothesis and executing? I think we go to Facebook for a different reason than we go to Instagram. Maybe those are closed. We go to Twitter for maybe something else. For LinkedIn, it's still the come here for professional networking. So if you're on LinkedIn for professional networking, I would just think like, what are your professional goals or aspirations? I think that a lot of people, especially now with this like great resignation and a lot of people have moved and shifted, but what are your professional goals, even if it's just in the next three or six months and how can your LinkedIn activity support whatever that is? Yeah. And I would say like, think, think of an umbrella topic, right? And then take that umbrella topic and push it through the lens of a true in-person networking event. Right. So imagine that I went to a networking event and I walked up to one person and they said, tell me a little bit about what you do. And I said, oh, I help people build their small businesses and build bigger businesses. And then I walked up to the next person. They asked me what I did. And I said, I bake chocolate chip cookies. That would be really strange if I was continuously going back and forth between two things that are completely unrelated. But people do that all the time. So I'd say pick an umbrella topic. Most people have skills. They're good at something in particular. Now, can you whittle it down? That's the challenging part. So pick your umbrella topic and then go out and talk about things that roll up to that topic. What will happen naturally over time is some of those subtopics will resonate more with your audience or your intended audience than others. And as you do that over time, uh, you pick leadership, right? Someday you talk about executive leadership. Other times you talk about first-time sales managers. Other days you talk about you know, female executive leadership, whatever. There's a million subtopics. Some of them will hit and some of them will be duds. And after a while, what you're looking for is what's the subtopic underneath my umbrella topic that really resonates most commonly? Once you start to do that, you can kind of whittle down and get into your zone, but you can start by with a more larger topic, if you will. What I wouldn't recommend is like, I have five things I really enjoy. They're completely unrelated. And therefore, Monday through Friday, I'm going to just completely flip-flop between five topics. Jennifer and I talk about this a lot. There are people whose stuff I've been reading for a year, and I don't know what they do. Like, I literally have no idea what they do for a living. I don't know if they're a coach, a consultant, an advisor, if they sell courses, I can't tell anything about their business. And so if you're thinking about going online and creating a little noise and getting some attention, look at your website, look at your LinkedIn profile, look at your messaging. Is it clear who you help, what you help them do, and how you help them do it? If those things can't be read and understood by a kindergartner, it's time to make things a little bit more simplistic. I would like to add on to that. You both reminded me, you asked what are some mistakes that we see people doing on LinkedIn? And just to add on to what Justin said, I think trying to make their tagline or their profile, like dress it up with extra words or make it more sophisticated because the result usually ends up being like, I don't understand what this person does. And uh, so I think simplicity, like Justin said, like something that a five-year-old or fifth grader can understand. I help X person get Y results. Easy, simple, clear, not nebulous. I saw a tagline that somebody wrote that said, I help people connect the dots in their business and personal lives. And I thought, well, what the heck does that mean? (laughs) So I think it's as simple and direct and to the point with your profile as you can possibly be is a huge leg up on a lot of other profiles. I, it makes me, what's that quote? It's like, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. It takes yeah. so much time to get just to distill. That's one of the things I like about sales is you're getting so much feedback. You can like start to find the crispest way 
to explain to the most number of people. And I think that applies to LinkedIn profiles. One thing I wanted to ask about, and we'll, we'll start with you, Justin, is a lot of veterans have, my story is they have a fear of standing out and maybe gaining one in the spotlight. Like it's a very selfless community. So putting themselves out there can feel uncomfortable because they've largely been trained to put the focus on the team rather than themselves. And conversely, I know that universally, there's a lot of people who really are afraid of being active on a platform like Twitter or LinkedIn because they don't want to say the wrong thing and have something go viral in the wrong way. And I'm just kind of curious if you have advice for either of those, someone who's afraid to like stand out because it seems selfish or people who think, man, I'm just going to get hammered for doing something wrong. First of all, I don't have a military background, so I'll speak without that context or, or anything, but I'll, I'll try and make a few guesses around based on the context that you shared. So if folks from the military think about the team first, I would consider my audience income community that Jennifer and I run, I would consider all the folks who have purchased a coaching call with me. I would consider everyone who's purchased a digital course from me, who subscribed to my newsletter. I would consider that a part of my team, right? They don't work for me, but they are folks who are working with me in a capacity to try and get better at something in particular. And I think that what seems braggadocious, what seems outgoing, what seems selfish in a way, I can understand how people might think about those things when they go to put themselves out there. If you're really helping people, you sort of owe it to folks, right? Like if there's someone who's can buy my course for 150 bucks and two hours later is like, oh my gosh, I've figured out something I've been struggling with for the last three months. And I save them 5,000 bucks worth of their time. They get started much more quickly. They spend less money. They get quicker traction. Like I don't feel all that bad about going out and promoting that. Right. So like that, that's the first thing that I would think about. Number one, number two, you raise a great point. We're, we're in an era where, you know, if you say the wrong thing and get in, get in trouble, we've all seen it and we've seen it happen to people who probably deserved it. And maybe some folks who haven't, that's why I focus on my topic. That's why I don't talk politics. It's why I don't talk about my personal life. It's why I don't share a lot of personal information online. I don't want to give people things to say no to unless it's that they're not interested in my topic or what I talk about. Say no to that all you want. What I believe personally, doesn't matter if you say I love dogs, 10% of people are going to hate that about you. And so I don't share a whole lot about that. And so I would say, curate your message, control your narrative, and be thoughtful and empathetic. And when you're feeling upset or angry at the world, stay off of social media. That's great advice. Yeah, it's a great underscoring of that earlier point about really narrowly defining the target. And I like this sense that people are rejecting you for the offering, not because you've created this huge target of of things that no matter who you are, people are going to like or dislike. Anything to add to that, Jennifer? Yeah, I would just say to add on to what Justin said or to underscore part of uh, our inspiration to start Audience and Income, which is our private community, was that we realized through my struggles, particularly with Culture Ops, my first startup consulting company, was that I had a valuable set of skills, a lot of experience and knowledge that I knew could help struggling, young, scaling startups. I struggled to get my message out, to share my message broadly. And so I missed out, or you could say that probably a lot of startups missed out 
on getting my information or getting my help because I couldn't formulate my message and I didn't know how to speak clearly on social media and, and, and create an effective presence there. I'm doing it a little bit differently now with personal finance, but if you have valuable knowledge or something to offer and you really can help people solve a problem, it's incredibly important to let your message be heard loud and clear because there's people who, we say this a lot, what we think is obvious to us is valuable information to someone else. So it is your responsibility to speak up because there's people out there that need your help. That message of service will resonate with listeners of like, it really is, if you have something valuable to contribute, it is almost a selfish act to not share that and not and not give back out of personal fear or whatever holds one back. I want to make space for anything we haven't covered. But first, let me just ask you both, and I'll, I'll take notes for our listeners. If people are interested in learning more about what you're up to, where would you like them to go? What, what are some resources they can check out? My website is just jenniferwelsh.me. I have a weekly newsletter that you can subscribe to right from my website. I send an email out every Tuesday that teaches people how to start investing in the stock market. And you can find me on LinkedIn, of course. My name is Jennifer Welsh there. And those are the two places to find me. Cool. You can find me at justinwelsh.me. And uh, I have a newsletter called The Saturday Solopreneur that just started. That's a uh, fourth issue will be going out on uh, this upcoming Saturday. You can buy my course, uh, The Operating System. It's just theoperatingsystem.co. That'll teach you how to use LinkedIn the right way, how to build a brand, build a presence, build a business by doing the things that most people don't do. So justinwelsh.me or theoperatingsystem.co. Great. I am not paid to say this or incentivized. I took the operating system.co and it's exceptional. I'm part of the audience and income group. It is also exceptional. I want to underscore from an interview maybe a hundred ago, Tom Kent, a guy I interviewed who, you know, talked about he would regularly hire coaches and pay them three to five thousand dollars. And he he had this attitude that if he learned one thing, he knew he could make ten to a hundred thousand dollars off that one thing. And that's literally the advice in my mind as I'm signing up to work with Justin one on one is like, man, it's a lot of money. And if you're doing something that you know you believe in, the quote I learned from this book is viewing it as an investment rather than a cost. And I say that especially for our community because we can be so cheap coming from the military. So I have no personal stake in whether you go on to do anything with Jennifer or Justin, but I want to most of all say like, do something to invest in yourself. It is so worth it. And I can I can speak for my involvement or my interaction with both of these two, extremely good content and, and no fluff on that. So I always like to leave the last question open-ended. And that is just, you know, there's a lot of questions I asked, but there's things I probably didn't ask about. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to make sure people know before we wrap up? Yeah, I'll, I'll add something. And I think it's important. I'm going to make a guess here. I'm going to guess that as people grow throughout the military, they probably earn, my guesses, rankings and badges and, and things that say that they have done something exceptional. Is that a fair guess for the most part? 100%, yep. Cool. The world is not much different, right? So for example, if you want to talk about finance, oftentimes you get a financial degree, but you also get a certification, right? If you want to talk about you know, something else, you, you get certified, you get a degree, you get an MBA, right? I think you have an MBA. Is that, is that right, yeah, Justin? That's right. And I would say like, because you come from that world in the military and because that's often how the world in and of itself interacts, don't let that hinder you from getting started. Like the market no longer cares about degrees and certificates. 
What happens is we all go to school, we all get a degree, not all of us, but a lot of us get a degree. Some of us get a master's, some of us get our series seven, some of us get our six sigma, whatever it's called. And then we go out into the market, like, and then we get our clients or our first job and all the other stuff that we just got, college degree, license, all gets forgotten about. All we care about is how are you performing for your clients? Right. So as a business owner and someone coming from the military, I would say, don't worry about certificates. Don't worry about whether you have your MBA or you went to a certain kind of school or, or any of that. The market dictates who wins business. So share your real life personal experience. Share how you've helped other people grow in your topic or niche. Once you do that, certificates, all that stuff, it all goes out the window. It's an excuse that people use to keep themselves from getting started. So I would just encourage people to realize the work that you do for people is what matters. It's not necessarily what a piece of paper says. That's so, so exceptional and so spot on because, you know, at least my experience in the military, it is so certificate driven. And I would view it as a check in the box and I wouldn't even focus on learning. And so I love this sense of like really learning, extracting knowledge and focus on delivering value. And that's what's going to matter. Not a, a title, not a certificate, not a pedigree, like none of that matters. And I hope that gives our audience a tremendous amount of confidence that like all that matters is doing a, a kick-ass job and, and you can do that. What about you, Jennifer? Yeah, I would just kind of add on to that and say, I think it's really hard when you're trying to figure out what you want to do for yourself like how you can possibly help people or service people. And this is some, something I say a lot. One man's trash is another man's treasure. So things that we know or consider like common knowledge can be really helpful to other people. For example, I mentioned that I did a lot of event planning in my startup life. And so planning a party and the logistics behind it and all the things you would need to create a budget and organize the timeline and get a venue and all these kinds of things are second nature to me. And I have people all the time in my personal life, friends asking me or about help with planning a party or we're doing this and how should I think about it? And it strikes me as interesting when that happens that somebody wouldn't know how to plan a basic event, but people struggle with having a dinner party for a few people at their house, right? So something that's really obvious and second nature to me is super helpful to other people. So this is advice that I, I'm not coming up with myself, but I've heard it before, but like, what do your friends and family ask you for help with? It may be something that you haven't considered could become a professional job or a way you could make money. But like I, a few of my friends were like, show me what you're doing in the stock market. I started showing them and I thought, wow, if this person needs help, probably other people. Now my two friends are asking the same questions. And so uh, just because it's common knowledge for you or something that you know how to do doesn't mean that there's not a lot of people out there that would find it really valuable and probably pay you money for your advice or for a course or buy a book that you write or something like that. So pay attention to what people ask you for help with. That's great. It, it does seem like a big blind spot of sometimes not knowing what we're best at. And so relying on that filter of like, what do other people come to you for? Like, that's a great thing. You might not value your own knowledge there. Thank you both for your time. For listeners at beyondtheuniform.org, we'll have show notes. We'll have links to everything we discussed in case you're flying a jet or driving a submarine while listening to this. Surface, surface, surface. Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our chief of staff, Steve Bain, our editor, Lex Brown, and our head of social media, Janelle Hanf. 
We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. Third of all, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for-purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.